0: Revelation. I'm just going to say right off the bat, I get nervous whenever we have to preach from the book of Revelation. Anyone with me here? Part of it's my Baptist background. We were part of what was called a dispensational church, uh, which meant we were always looking around for signs of the end times. The rise of the great 20th century Antichrist, uh, of, of Jesus coming back any day now to kick butt and take names, of God's people being raptured up into heaven, and of the world being destroyed in a nuclear holocaust, because God loves us. Now, none of those concepts are actually anywhere in the Bible but we were told, no, that was the case, and, and we were on guard. As a good church kid, I read Hal Lindsay's book, Late Great Planet Earth. How many of y'all? Lane read it. Anyone else here? Oh, a bunch of y'all. Good. I was 13 or 14 years old. I was old enough to be scared to my bones about the existential significance of the book's claims, which was that it proved that the apocalyptic and prophetic books of the Bible, like Elijah and Daniel and Revelation and others, all pointed inexorably to God destroying the earth in the hellfire of nuclear Armageddon in the year um, 1988. I missed it, did you guys? I might have slept out and slept in that morning. Uh, Yeah, it didn't come in, it didn't happen. Or 1989 when he said, oh, I miscalculated a bit. Or 92 or 97 or 98 or 99 or any of the other years that the world was supposed to end. But I was old enough to be terrified. And I was not old enough to recognize the incredibly shabby biblical scholarship, in scare quotes, and profoundly toxic theology undergirding the whole argument of dispensationalist theology. It wasn't until I got to seminary and college a bit that I learned that apocalyptic literature, of which the Revelation of John, that you read, is the best known, is not what I was told. I had been told that Revelation was a road map of God's far-flung future plans for the destruction of the planet, because he loves us so much. But it's not how Lindsay's left behind. It is St. John's happily ever after. Apocalyptic does not mean the end of the world. Apocalyptic means an unveiling, a revealing is actually a literature of liberation and resistance. Apocalyptic is written by people who are crushed by empire, marginalized by culture, beaten down by systemic injustice, but still sustained by a radical hope in a God who has not forgotten them.
1: That doesn't mean that revelation is simple. There are some profoundly um, wild and sometimes disturbing stories in there. And they are artfully crafted metaphors and symbols and meanings to offer hope, a faith-filled hope, to people who are deeply pressed that creation will be completed That God is bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And that God's tender hand will wipe away every tear. It's a lot of tears. That death and mourning and pain would be no more. It had to sound pretty good to that early church that was being oppressed by Rome. And I have to say, it sounds pretty good now. Because we, too, struggle under the oppressive weight of empire and of isms and of injustices that crush folk in our society and in our world by the news of yet another mass shooting racially motivated, by the leaking of Supreme Court documents seeking to take away human rights, by the news of wars that rage on and on, for those original hearers of Revelation, it was a book for, to create endurance and hope, and that can also be true for us as well. And that same endurance and hope is what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel reading. It's the beginning of what's a fairly lengthy farewell speech in the Gospel of John, and just before this reading, Judas has just left the Last Supper to go and betray Jesus. Things are going to get real. Things are going to get bad really fast. Jesus knows he's not going to be around much longer. And so he wants to give his disciples some final thoughts before he leaves.
0: Jesus' words, so those, those last words, letting them know what they really need to know, reminds me of uh, when, when you would go away <laughs> on uh, attending the fire trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, And she would, like, have a set speech for the kids. It was like, here's my cell phone number. Here's the hotel number where I'll be on Thursday. Here's the next-door neighbor's number in case dad's gone. You know 911. There's five casseroles in the fridge. Here's my debit card if you get stuck. No, I did not give them my debit card. (laughs) No. Be good to each other. You know the house rules. Remember I love you. Goodbye. I love
1: you. Did I mention I love you? That's kind of what Jesus is doing, except for maybe the cell phone number and the casserole party.
0: Jesus made an awesome fish casserole. <laughs> it,
1: just, it just kept
0: coming and coming and coming. You could...
1: I give you a new commandment, Jesus said. And I imagine the disciples kind of leaning forward. And then he says, love one another. And I imagine them thinking, I've heard that one. Right? But then he says, love one another as I've loved you. And then he raises it up even another notch and says, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples when they see you love each other. Jesus isn't going to be around much longer, and so he wants to be sure that his disciples get this. He wants them to be ready for when he's gone so that what he's about, that love, will keep going.
0: The... Last of the great public theologians, Reinhold Niebuhr, called this new commandment to love as Jesus loved. He called it the impossible possibility. Because somehow, as impossible as it is, loving one another makes Jesus present. It creates what we call the kingdom, the realm of God, the blessed community. It makes a new heaven and a new earth, impossible as that might seem, in the world and in ourselves. The key is loving one another as Jesus loves us. It offers a newness that nothing else can create. I know you've experienced it where forgiving someone for a wrong they did to you somehow released you even more from the prison of bitter resentment. Or how fighting for justice frees us from complacency and helplessness. And how caring for the least, the lost, and the lonely opens us from a narrow life into something almost unimaginably broader and richer and more profound. Loving one another as Jesus loves us is the most powerful antidote to the prisons of hatred, the silos of resentment and despair. That even the best of us can slide into if we're not paying attention.
1: We don't have to tell you that it's not always easy and that it seems awfully slow if it's moving forward at all and some days it feels impossible and yet Jesus trusts us to do it. It changes the world and it changes us and when I need some extra reassurance that this is even possible. I turn to the poem from uh, Wendell Berry called Wild Geese. Wendell Berry is a farmer and environmental activist and poet who lives in Kentucky. And the words of the poem, the end of that poem, are on the front of your bulletin. He writes, and we ask not for a new earth and heaven, but to be quiet in mind and in eye clear, What we need is here. What we need is here. Right here. Right now. We have what's needed to work toward God's realm. Not all the way, but when we can be clear enough to see God's possibility and quiet enough in our minds and in our hearts to love even when it seems impossible. Then we engage Jesus' commandment to love one another as he loves us with curiosity and compassion and hope. I didn't think about it this way until this week, but for me Wendell Berry's words are apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. They help me stay who I am in the midst of a challenging world. You might
0: have read in the New York Times this week uh, a real life example of this. Uh, Domingo Morales is a 30 year old Latino man who is known as the compost champion of New York. Didn't even know there was such a thing.
1: I don't think there was before him,
0: actually. <laughs> Mr. Morales uh, grew up in public housing and foster care in the Bronx. And he would befriend guys who hung out on the street. He and his then girlfriend had their first child at 17 and a second child two years later. He tried to support his young family, but after a series of low-paying jobs, dead-end jobs, uh, Mr. Morales sank into despair and considered suicide. And then he came across a notice, a bulletin, from a group called Green City Force, a nonprofit that trains young people from public housing for horticulture and other green jobs in the city. And in his words, he wrote, it was either, all right, I'm taking the elevator up to the roof right now, meaning to jump off, or I'm taking this flyer to my apartment. Thankfully, he took the fire, and his world opened up, he says.
1: So as Mr. Morales learned to build garden beds and to turn compost by hand, he also learned about food injustice and how compost is a carbon sink that has all kinds of environmental and economic benefits He'd always assumed, and these are his words, that composting was a smelly thing that upper-class white people do. And what he realized was that if urban dwellers could have a hands-on experience with compost, they'd discover the magic of taking food scraps and seeing them turn into something powerful that could nourish plants and help food grow. He says, composting is the only form of recycling that you do from start to finish and watch your work be put to good use. It has not all been smooth sailing, uh,
0: but in 2019, Mr. Morales received a grant that enabled him to build compost farms in five public housing projects, which have so far produced, get this, 300 tons. 30. Oh, 30. That's still a lot, (laughs) 30 tons of compost for area farms and employs nine young housing project residents. Uh, He calls it compost power. And his slogan is make composting cool. I'm not sure if he succeeded yet.
1: Actually, you want compost to be hot, but that's another (laughs) story.
0: But he's made this incredibly deep investment into his community. He's provided workshops for children and adults and mentoring workers to understand and run the composting business. He's made a difference right here, right now
1: with what he had right here and right now. Domingo Morales is making a new earth. He's literally making new earth, in fact from what's around him, from food trash that New Yorkers were throwing away. He saw the need, he saw the possibility, and he threw himself into this with undying love and creativity and a commitment to make the world and his community a better place. He's a living witness that what we need is right here.
0: If we read the news in the morning and we get a little down it's because we realize we don't have quick solutions to the myriad problems facing our world. I still get nervous about preaching from the book of Revelation, which continues to be misused in dangerous and deadly ways by people twisting it to their own controlling ends, or, (laughs) at least, to sell books and boost TV ratings. But in the midst of not having the quick solutions, I'm not willing to abandon the Book of Revelation because it has a message of hope and perseverance that can keep us grounded as we seek to do the impossible to love as Jesus loved us, not as a quick solution,
1: but as a lifelong way of being and doing. The Jesus who in Revelation says, behold, I make all things new, is the same one who said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. That new heaven and new earth is ultimately
0: a gift of God,
1: and each of us has our parts to make it a reality in the way that we love one another in this community of faith and in a world that is starving for love. What we need is here. What what we each need, what our community needs to do our part of making a new heaven and a new earth. Sometimes we are heartbroken as we do that. And yet we trust that Jesus makes all things new. And so alongside Wendell Berry, we pray for a clear eye and a quiet mind. Alongside Reinhold Niebuhr, we hope to do the impossible possibility and along with Domingo Royales, we hope to apply ourselves to the real issues of where we are with what we have and let God transform the results. May this be true for us and for you. Amen. And I we know we are Christians by our love. It's twenty-two twenty-three in the Black hymnal. Yeah first